As we turn to Galatians chapter 5, we are in today, I believe, part 8 of our series called Set Free. We are looking at Paul's letter to the church in Galatia. As Paul, this great apostle who God is using uh, to build the church, this missionary who's gone around and planted churches, in fact, planted these specific churches he's writing to in Galatia, he's declaring the importance of the freedom that only comes through Jesus. He is writing to remind them of what they've been set free from. And, and I love this idea of freedom, right? Uh, my dad was a Marine. Uh, much tougher man than I am, much more of a man's man than I am, not someone who would get up here and cry every other Sunday the way that I do. Uh, some, somebody who, who's very tough, I mean physically tough. Uh, my dad's been through a lot of physical pain and you would never know it. He's not somebody to complain, he's somebody who just kind of pulls himself up by his bootstraps, right, and goes out and accomplishes what needs to be done. And so my dad, as a Marine, raised me to love and value freedom. Man, that, that freedom as an American is, is kind of one of our core values, isn't it? I mean, our American holiday is the day where we celebrate independence, right? It's actually not called the 4th of July, believe it or not. Uh, it, it's called Independence Day, right? It's the day that we celebrate that we are free. So for all of us as Americans, this is kind of something that, that speaks to us pretty directly, isn't it? This is something we value. This is something that we cherish. In fact, I remember when I was a kid, uh, we, we used to, my mom used to babysit uh, a couple of, of kids who were right around my age. In fact, a couple years older than me. And so we had a pool table. We got a $35 pool table from a secondhand store. It was great, let me tell you. It had, uh, no, I don't think there was any flat part on the table. You had to kind of learn the curves and learn the banks. Uh, but, but for a kid, it was awesome. And I remember uh, there, there was this girl who we were babysitting, and she had one of these days, I was probably, I don't know, eight years old, where she decided she was going to be annoying. You, you ever seen a kid have one of those days? So she decided she was going to stand right where I was trying to swing every time that I was getting ready to take my shot, right? So she would stand behind the stick, basically daring me to pop her, knowing that I couldn't because I would get in trouble if I did. And I would be like, girl, move. And she would say these words that are so ridiculous that have been abused so often, but she would say, why? It's a free country. You ever heard somebody say that? It's a free country. I can do whatever I want. And I would get so mad and so angry that she wouldn't move. And I remember talking to my dad about it, this freedom-loving Marine. And dad said, well, next time she says that, you tell her, with freedom comes responsibility. Now, that's a great truth, but it doesn't really work for a 10-year-old. Right? Like, that did not motivate her. She was not overwhelmed by a sense of patriotism that, okay, I need to move because I've been given great responsibility. Right? Uh, but the reality is, church, as a believer, you have been given amazing freedom. Unbelievable freedom. Unfathomable freedom. Freedom far beyond what we've been given as Americans. Right? Freedom with far deeper significance, with eternal implications. We've been given spiritual freedom, and the truth is, David Souden is right. With freedom comes responsibility. 
right? And that's what Paul is getting ready to kind of transition into. He's been addressing these claims by these Jewish non-believers, these people who say, yeah, Jesus is good, but, but we don't just need Jesus. We still need all of the Old Testament law, all of the Old Testament ritual, all of the Old Testament customs, all of the Old Testament tradition, all of the Old Testament religion. So yeah, you can have Jesus, but you still need to do these festivals. You still need to celebrate these feasts. You still need to, if you're a guy, you still need to get circumcised. You need to be invested in this if you're really going to have true justification. The idea here is that justification is when we are made right with God. And they're saying, you can't be right with God just from Jesus, just from his death and resurrection. You've got to have some things that you were doing as well. And so Paul writes and says, no, you have freedom in Christ. Don't return to something that's added things to Jesus because what that's actually doing is taking from Jesus. And so in Galatians chapter 5, we reach one of my favorite verses in the Bible. One of probably the most famous verses in Galatians next week. We're going to get to what is probably the most famous section of Galatians. We're going to talk about the fruits of the Holy Spirit. Talk about the evidence that God is at work in our lives as we do the second half of Galatians chapter 5. But this week, we, re- we, we continue this discourse on freedom. And Paul says this. He says, it is for freedom. Everybody say freedom. freedom. It's your best William Wallace song. Freedom! Right? It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. What an amazing statement when you really dig into it, but what kind of an obvious statement on its surface, right? Isn't it almost like, duh, Paul, you don't need to say that? But the reality is he did need to say it because they had received freedom and yet were returning to something less than freedom. So Paul says, church, believer, brother, sister in Christ, he sets you free for a reason. He didn't set you free for a temporary freedom. He didn't set you free for, for, for you to receive something for a season and then return to something less. He set you free so that you would be free. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. He says, stand firm then, When you tell somebody to stand firm, why do you tell them to stand firm? Because there's something coming that's going to try to shake your foundation, right? Stand firm because the wind's going to start blowing. Stand firm because the earth's going to start shaking. Stand firm because some forces are going to come against you. You don't have to tell somebody to stand firm when it's easy. You don't have to tell somebody to stand firm when there's no opposition. You don't tell somebody to stand firm when when it's not going to be a problem. He says, look, something is coming against you that's going to try to push you from the freedom that God has placed you on. And you, church, you believer, you Christian, you follower of Christ, you're going to have to stand firm. He says, stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. That word yoke It's very interesting. It's not one that we use uh, a lot of times. It does not mean the center part of an egg, by the way. That's that's a different spelling. That's with an L. Uh, The yoke that he's referring to is a device that would be placed across the neck of two oxen. 
It, it would bind them together. It, it would make sure that they were moving in the same direction, that their power was united. In fact, there's kind of this exponential increase in power that happens when, when two cattle, two oxen, two horses are bound together. They're, they're actually stronger than they are as one. I think there's spiritual implications there for us. Why are we getting into city groups in a few weeks? Because we're stronger when we're together, amen? We're, we're better, two are better than one. That's what the Bible teaches us. So there's this implication here, but, but the yoke is kind of constricting, right? The yoke means one oxen can't go this way while the other oxen goes that way. The yoke limits their freedom. And so Paul says, don't be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Jewish literature in this era 2,000 years ago said that, that the law, the Old Testament, was a yoke that you had to submit to. If you wanted justification, if you wanted to be right with God, you had to submit yourself to this yoke of the law. And Paul says, look, the yoke of the law has been broken. You are not under the law anymore. You are under freedom. When you've been set free, why would you go back and sleep in your prison cell? What purpose would that serve? You've been set free that you could be free. Verse 2, Paul says, mark my words. I, Paul, tell you that if you let yourselves be circumcised, Christ will be of no value to you at all. Now, that does not mean if you are circumcised in this room that Jesus doesn't love you. It's not what he's saying, all right? He's not saying, man, that, that don't do this to your kids. That's it's not his message. What he's saying is these people have come into the church, and they started telling these Gentile believers, these people who weren't Jews, who didn't grow up with the custom of circumcision, that, well, if you're going to be a Christian, if you're going to have God, then you're going to have to go through this Jewish ceremony, this Jewish ritual. And Paul says, look, if you do that, so that you can have salvation, the reality is you're stealing from your salvation. You're choosing something that says there's something I can do to be right with God. And that's not the gospel. The gospel is that God has sent his son to die for you to make you right with him. That there's nothing in you where you could ever be right with God in and of yourself. And so if you start adding stuff and saying, well, I've got to do this, and I've got to do this, and I've got to do this, what you're actually saying is that Jesus isn't enough. And the amazing thing about our Lord and Savior is that he takes us just as we are. He loves us right where we're at, and he gives us all of himself. And he takes all of us, but he won't take part of us. Right? He, he, he won't take us in pieces. He wants all or nothing at all. And the same thing in reverse, that we have to take all of Jesus or none of him. So if he's not enough for us, then that means that we don't have him at all. This is what Paul is trying to teach them. Verse 3, he says, Again, I declare to every man who lets himself be circumcised that he's obligated to obey the whole law. So if all of a sudden you think the law can justify you, if you think being good enough and doing the right things can make you right with God, then you're going to have to live up to all of it. We talked about earlier in the series, we can just take the Ten Commandments, set aside the rest of the law, the first five books of the Bible, just take the Ten Commandments, and none of us in this room would be right with God, right? If that was the standard, hey, you shall not lie, shall have no other gods before me, you shall not take the Lord's name in vain, honor the Sabbath day and keep it holy, honor your father and your mother, right? If we go down that list, 
all of us start dropping out pretty quick, right? We, we, we could stand, if we could have everybody stand up and start going through the Ten Commandments and sit down when you've broken one, we wouldn't make it very far through the list before everybody's sitting down, right? And so he says, look, if you think the law can make you right with God, you have to understand you got to obey all of it, which none of us can and none of us have. We've all failed. We've all fallen short. So he says, you need something besides your own works. You need something besides your own goodness. You need something besides your own actions. And the good news is that something exists, and his name is Jesus Christ. And he is enough to justify you. Verse 4, he says, you who are trying to be justified by the law have been alienated from Christ. He says, you have fallen away from grace. Fallen away from grace. What a terrible, terrifying statement. Paul is not saying that grace has been taken from them. He's saying that they have turned from it. He's saying that you have chosen not to receive grace. You have chosen to walk away from grace. And now Bible scholars can debate and have debated for generations. Does that mean they've lost their salvation? And there's some who will fall down and say yes, and some who will fall on the side and say no. Some who will say, well, they were never saved to begin with. Well, we, we can have that conversation another time. The important thing to understand is this. Falling from grace is not a good place to be. Whether that means you're ultimately going to heaven or not, it means that what Jesus paid for you to have is not active in your life. That you're not receiving the blessing of grace. What is grace? Grace is God giving you that which you do not deserve. That's an awesome and beautiful thing, isn't it? To receive God's grace. Talk about receiving something that you do not deserve. Today is August the 18th. 2019. Two years ago, August the 18th, 2017, we were in another location in Olive Branch. We were in a shopping center, and we were in the midst, in fact, had just finished a fundraising project. We'd raised $20,000 to renovate where we were at. We, we had this whole vision to flip our auditorium 90 degrees and add another bay and do all these things in this shopping center where we'd been located for years. And August 22nd, I got a phone call. And the phone call said, hey, there's a building of another church that's shutting down. Would you guys be interested? And we, long story short, moved into this building in November of 2017. We, we took a couple months to renovate it and to fix it up. But we received this building for free, for zero. We received this building not just for free, not just the six acres of land that it sits on for free, but we received it completely paid off. No rent, no mortgage, no anything. You know what that's called? That's called grace. Did we deserve this? No. Did we do anything to earn it? No. We didn't even pray for it. We didn't stand and believe God for it. We didn't drive by this property and say, in Jesus' name, that building's going to be ours, right? This church is going to shut down. Of course we didn't pray that, right? How horrible would that have been? How awful would that have been? We, we didn't believe God for this. We, we believed God to, to help us to improve where we were. But God, in his grace, said, I've got something better for you. I see what you want. I see the steps you're trying to take to be able to reach more people, to be a bigger blessing in this community, and I'm just going to blow your mind. 
I'm just going to go way above and beyond anything that you can ask, think, or dream of, according to Ephesians 2.10, right? Because he is able. And so God extended his grace on City Church two years ago. It's amazing to me to see where we are now, to see how many of your faces weren't a part of our family two years ago. That God has brought in lives that have been changed, families that have been impacted, so many things that God has done in such a short period of time. Why has that happened? Because we serve a God of grace. Now, what if we had gotten that phone call and said, you know what, that sounds good, but I think we can do better on our own. Man, we... we, Man, yeah, God, you, you got a good idea, but, but we're going to raise the money and buy our own place, and so we can earn it. How stupid would we have been, right? How foolish would that be? You would immediately leave a church where your leadership team was so prideful as to say, no, we don't want something free that God wants to bless us with. And Paul's writing to the Galatians and saying, gently, sometimes, sometimes not so gently, you morons, Why in the world do you think that you can do better than God's grace? What in the world have you gotten this idea from that somehow you can do something to earn something that's better than what God has already paid for for you? This is the message of Galatians. It's the message of grace that we have been set free, not of our own goodness, not of our own works, not of our own ability or strength or planning or vision or anything. We've been set free simply because God is good. He's so good. He's so good. He's so good to us. Amen? Verse 5. He says, For through the Spirit we eagerly await by faith the righteousness for which we hope. I'm going to try to drink this without spilling it all over myself. We'll see how it goes. He says, we receive the righteousness for which we hope. We receive it by faith. And he says that we are eagerly awaiting it. What, what is he saying? You see, in another letter, Paul says that you as a believer are the righteousness of God in Christ. And so if we look at our lives... Most of us probably see our own unrighteousness, right? Most of us, when we look at ourselves, we see the ways that we fall short. We see the ways that we don't measure up, and so we would never call ourselves righteous. God, in his goodness, sent Jesus to live a perfect life, to walk in complete righteousness, to die on a cross in our place, to substitute for us. We call that the theological term the substitutionary atonement, That we've been paid for. Our debt has been paid by another. He's atoned for our sin. He's made up for our sin. And that because of that, his righteousness has been credited to our account. So right now today, if you're a believer in Jesus, you've given your life to him, you stand before God righteous. Which that's kind of mind-blowing when you think about it. That's something that's very difficult for us to process because we know our own unrighteousness. So we are righteous by credit. But Paul says one day you're going to be righteous by action. One day you're going to receive that righteousness. We're hoping for it now. But a day will come where we're received into God's midst, where we're delivered from sin, we're delivered from death, we're delivered from from the chains that hold us back, and we'll actually walk in that righteousness fully and completely. Now that day will not come 
until after Jesus comes again. Right? And until after we are united with him in eternity, we're not going to walk in complete righteousness here on earth. We can try, and we should. We should get close. But we're always going to have some element of that holding on to us. But Paul says one day you're going to have that righteousness. Through the Holy Spirit, we eagerly await for that day. Verse 6, he says, For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. So he says, look, it doesn't matter if you've done the Jewish custom. It doesn't matter if you haven't done the Jewish custom. He's not saying that you're less of a believer because you've been circumcised or less of a believer because you haven't. Not less of a believer because you do this feast or less of a believer because you don't. He said as the, the, the key is not those things. It's not these rituals. It's not these expressions on the outside. The key is, have you believed in Jesus inside? Have you given him your life? The only thing that counts is faith, which will express itself through love. Verse 7, he says, you were running a good race. God forbid it could ever be said of us that we were running a good race. God forbid that God would ever look at our life and say, you had it. You were there. You were, on, you were on track. You were chasing after my best. You were moving in the right direction. Man, I was so proud of what was going on in your life. And for some reason, you tapped out. For some reason, you took an exit. For some reason, you, you stopped or you turned around. For some reason, you're not running that good race anymore. God forbid that would ever be said of me. That one... At one point, I was running a good race, but I'm not anymore. What a, what a terrible statement. He says, who cut in on you to keep you from obeying the truth? It's heavy words. He says, that kind of persuasion does not come from the one who calls you. This isn't God at work among you. God isn't doing this to you. Then he, then he makes this quote uh, that, that he's made before. He made this in, in a similar book called 1 Corinthians book that was written just a little bit before this book of Galatians in the same era of Paul's ministry he makes this same quote he says a little yeast works through the whole batch of dough that that yeast is representative in scripture of sin that that man just a little bit of, of this in this case he's talking about law He's talking about legalism, that man, just a little bit of legalism gets in you, it's going to work itself out to where it just overtakes you. It didn't take a lot of yeast to make bread, and I am a definite expert when it comes to baking. No. I'm not. That's a lie. Uh, I, I don't know exactly how that works, but I know if you buy a pack of yeast, right, it's like a little bitty seasoning packet. Like, like, it's not very big. There's not a whole lot in there. And somehow you put that in with all the wheat and all the other ingredients, because I'm a big expert once again. Uh, and, and somehow that turns into this, this dough that rises, right, into this thing that, that becomes the bread that, that I do love to consume, even though I don't love to cook. Uh, and, and so he says, look, in the same way, that's what sin does. That's what legalism does. If you think, oh, well, I can have Jesus and just add this one other action to make myself justified. I just need Jesus and circumcision. I just need Jesus and this, this outward expression. Whatever it might be, he says, that legalism is going to take over everything. And before you know it, you're going to keep thinking you've got to earn everything from God when you can't earn anything from God. 
Verse 10, he says, I am confident in the Lord that you will take no other view. In other words, he says, I'm confident you're going to get this right. I'm frustrated with you, and I'm speaking kind of harshly with you at times, but deep down, I believe in you, Galatians. I've seen your faith at work. I've seen the way you fell in love with salvation, with the God who died for you, with the one who loves you. I've seen it at work, so I'm confident you're going to get this right. I'm confident you're going to walk in freedom. He says, the one who is throwing you into confusion, or whoever that may be, will have to pay the penalty. He says that if we teach people wrong, we're going to be held accountable. That's a scary, scary verse when you stand on a stage every week and open up the Bible and teach from it. That's a scary verse when you're in the line of work that I'm in. One day I'm going to stand before God. And he's going to hold me accountable for things that I taught his people. Did I teach them well? Did I teach them right? Did I study? Did I dive into it? Did I make sure that I wasn't teaching my opinion or my preference or simply what I've been taught, but did I make sure that I was teaching actually what his word says? Because if not, he says, I'm going to have to pay a penalty. A day will come where I'm going to stand before him and answer for this conversation right now. Right? For, for every one of these that I've had with students, with young people, with adults, that's a, that's a scary verse. There's a weight that comes with this. It's important, and it's an honor, and I'm so grateful for it. I look forward to every Sunday morning with you guys. But, man, there's a weight of teaching. Verse 11, he says, Brothers and sisters, if I'm still preaching circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been abolished. So Paul's addressing these accusations he's received. Obviously, the, these Jewish believers or non-believers who have come in and, and tried to deceive them, they've attacked Paul's credibility, they've attacked his character, but also they're misquoting him. Also, they've apparently come in and said, look, Paul's even teaching people to get circumcised. Even Paul thinks you have to do this. And Paul says, look, that's not what I've taught. That's not where I'm at. Have you ever been accused of a stance that's like the complete polar opposite of where you stand? It's like, how in the world did you ever even get that from what I said? Where did you ever get this idea? Paul says, no, that's not me. And he says, in that case, the offense of the cross has been abolished. In other words, the cross is offensive to the religious. What's he talking about? The offense of the cross. The offense of the cross is that God would die in my place and that I can't do anything to earn his salvation. He says that's offensive to religious people. That's offensive. He said, if I'm teaching you, you got to be circumcised in order to have what Jesus has. I'm not teaching you the cross. I'm not teaching you what he's actually done for you. He says, look, this thing is scandalous. Man, there, there's something in the religious that don't like this idea of grace. Because what does grace do? Grace puts us all on the same level ground, right? Grace means I can't be self-righteous against somebody else. Grace means I can't judge somebody else. I can't put somebody else down for the way that they're living. Even if they're not living up to God's best. Doesn't mean we can't hold them accountable. Doesn't mean we can't call them to do better. But it means I can't decide that because you're walking in this sin and I'm not, that that makes me better than you. I can't. And that's offensive to our religious sensibilities. We want to rank ourselves. 
don't we? We want to compare ourselves, man. And we, we want to think, man, we're, we're doing pretty good. Look at all these other people who aren't as good as us. Jesus told the parable, right, uh, of the Pharisee uh, who, who prays. And he's like, man, thank God that I'm not like this tax collector over here. Right? And what was the tax collector? The lowest of the low. The despised. But Jesus builds up the tax collector. He says the tax collector's prayer, the sinful man, was better than the prayer of the Pharisee, this guy who spent his whole life making sure he did not sin. Why? Because the tax collector's heart was a heart of humility towards God, and the Pharisee's heart was a heart of arrogance. So grace puts us all on the same level. Grace says, look, apart from Jesus, I'm nothing. But because of Jesus, I have everything. It's offensive when we think that we've got it together. Verse 12, he says, as for those agitators, speaking of these, these people who have come in against the truth, he says, as for those agitators, I wish they'd go the whole way and emasculate themselves. And I think that's the harshest statement in all the Bible. I, I don't think there's a more uh, graphic uh, more, more passionate verse in scripture. Uh, and, and I remember reading this. I remember studying it actually in Bible college. And, and I had a, a professor who was very much uh, kind of hellfire and brimstone kind of guy, right, who loved this verse, right? Like if, if people are missing God, I just wish they'd emasculate themselves. Uh, and, and what I discovered later on in studying that I was not taught in Bible college is that the Jews actually had a belief that if you were emasculated, you were cut off from the covenant. That, that circumcision was required for the covenant, but if you went ahead and took the whole thing off, you were somehow severed from the covenant. And so what Paul is saying is he's not literally saying, I wish Lorena Bobbitt would work its way through your church, right? <laughs> you didn't think we were going there today, did you? Right? It's, it's the Bible taking up with Paul. I'm just teaching He's not saying that. What he's saying is, I wish they understood that by teaching circumcision as a requirement for salvation, that they're cutting themselves off from the covenant. I wish they realized that this thing that they're trying to hold over somebody else to say this qualifies you for salvation is actually disqualifying them in the process. That's why he goes so far as to say, I wish they'd go so far is to emasculate themselves. Our final verse for this morning, verse 13. And we're going to start here next week. This is our, our pivot verse. This is where Galatians shifts from this high-level theology to actual application. What are we going to do with all this? We spent eight weeks now talking about freedom, talking about walking away from legalism, walking away from religion, walking away from, from all this stuff where we think we can earn what God has for us. Verse 13 Paul pivots. He says this. He says, you, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free. Everybody say called. called. You were called to be free. That is a calling on your life. You ever wrestle with that? Man, I, I just want to know what I'm called to. I do believe that God has specific things that he's created you for that may be different than the specific things he's created other people for. I believe that there's something in you that is unique from the person sitting next to you. But I can tell you this. Sometimes it's hard to really discern exactly what that is, and we're just going to pursue our best and do our best with what we've got. But I can tell you what you're called to, church. You are called to freedom. 
You were called to be free. You were not called to religion. You were not called to ritual. You were not called to legalism. You were not called to works. You were not called to effort. You were called to freedom. This is a calling on your life. This isn't just something that he hopes you can maybe grasp a little bit. This is what God has prepared you for. You are called to be freedom. But he says this, but he says, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Don't use your freedom as a license to sin. Here's where we can miss it. If we just spend eight weeks talking about freedom and Jesus has made us free and we can't earn our salvation and all those things. And if we're not careful, we hear all that and say, sweet, I can do whatever I want. Paul says that's not the freedom that he's called you to. He says, do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. I love the way Paul contrasts this. He says, look, you can live for your flesh and live for yourself, which would be missing what Jesus has called you to in freedom. Because the reality is, when we just continually indulge the flesh, there's no freedom in that, right? That's a whole different kind of bondage than what Paul's talking about. Paul's talking about bondage to legalism, but we can go the other way and we can get in bondage to sin. We can get in bondage to addiction, bondage to habit. He says, don't go, don't go the other way with it. There's a ditch on either side, in other words. There's a ditch of self-righteousness, and there's a ditch of unrighteousness. Paul says, we're called to the road in the middle. But he doesn't contrast it with good works. He doesn't contrast it with, with righteous living the way we would think it. He says, serve one another humbly with love, right? That, that, that the opposite of living according to the flesh is living for others. He says the ultimate test of whether you've gotten this, the ultimate test of whether you've received what God's given you is simply this. Are you living for yourself? That's indulging the flesh. Or are you living for the brothers and sisters God's placed around you? Serving one another humbly in love is the evidence that we've received the freedom God's given us and we're walking in the freedom he's giving us and we're not using it as a license to sin. We're not using it as an excuse to justify whatever action we want, but we're using it to please God by serving others. I love this. You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. By the way, that's our youth pastor, Pastor Donovan Rice. That's his life verse. And he told me that, uh, man, in an interview weeks ago, months ago now, uh, that, man, yeah, Galatians 5.13, that's my verse. That's what I build my life on. And little did we know at that point in time that we'd be here week eight unpacking Galatians 5.13. I know that this has been a lot of theology over the last eight weeks. This has been a lot of engaging the brain and, and kind of working through what does this mean. So I wanted to, to wrap this section up as we make the transition into application. I wanted to wrap it up with maybe a different way, uh, a way to stimulate us maybe uh, in, in, from a different angle. So I brought a clip from Braveheart that talks about freedom. Uh, this is Mel Gibson in this role as William Wallace, the liberator of the Scottish people. Uh, it's going to be about two minutes long. Go ahead and roll that. Check this out. I am William Wallace. And I see a whole army of my countrymen here in defiance of tyranny. You've come to fight as free men. 
free men you are. What will you do without freedom? Will you fight? and you may die. Run, and you'll live. At least a while. And dying in your beds many years from now, would you be willing to trade all the days from this day to that for one chance, just one chance, to come back here and tell our enemies that they may take our lives scene is awesome. That whole movie is awesome. If you value freedom, if it's an important thing to you, I highly recommend it. But he made one quote there that I want to draw your attention to that I think really wraps up what Paul is talking about here. He says, I see a whole army of my countrymen here in defiance of tyranny. He says, you have come to fight as free men and free men you are. What would you do with that freedom? For us, Paul's not talking about a battle in this specific text, although it is a battle. But he's not talking about an army. He's not talking about us fighting for independence, for physical freedom, national freedom. He's talking about this internal battle that we have for spiritual freedom. But I love the way Wallace sums this up. And I don't know if this quote is historically accurate, but it definitely works in the movie. He says, you have come to fight as free men and free men you are. Today, if you're a believer in Jesus, you're a free man, you're a free woman. But he asks the question, what would you do with that freedom? What a shame it would be to be delivered from sin, delivered from bondage, delivered from habit, from addiction, delivered from everything that the world uses to hold us back. What a shame it would be for Jesus Christ to die in our place that we would have freedom and for us to use that freedom foolishly. See, what the army here wanted to do that he's confronting is, is they realized the British army was a lot bigger than they were. And they said, you know what, we're going to run, because if we run, we're going to live. And Wallace says, no, stay and fight, because only by fighting for your freedom are you truly free. He says, your life, if you run from this, isn't free. You're going to cower the rest of your life. You're going to be in fear the rest of your life. He says, stand and fight. Believers, I believe it's time for us to stand and fight. For us to claim our freedom, for us to walk in our freedom, and for us to be compelled by that freedom, as Galatians 5.13 says, not to use that freedom as a license to indulge the the flesh, but rather to serve one another humbly in love. You are free, Christian. You're free today. 
what would you do with that freedom? Would you pray with me? Father God, I thank you so much for these awesome truths we've been able to unpack today. God, I thank you that, that you have called us to freedom. That you've prepared freedom for us. That because of Jesus, because of the gospel, because Jesus died in my place, I can be free. And God, I thank you that you haven't just given me a cheap freedom that that allows me simply to do whatever I want, to be master of my own domain. But God, you've called me to a freedom that compels me to action, that compels me to serve others, that compels me to serve others humbly in love. And God, not just me. Lord, you've called all of us as your children, as your adopted sons and daughters to exactly this. God, you didn't just set us free from something. You set us free to something. God, let us today embrace what you set us free for. Let us embrace the calling you've placed on us to freedom and to walk in that freedom exactly as you've designed it. God, that that freedom would allow us to help others to be set free as well. We thank you so much for that freedom, God, in Jesus' name.